And a very good morning to you. We're live from London. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. In the studio today, my panellists, Tessa Shishkovitz and Enrico Franceschini will be dissecting the week's big story. Tessa, what's you spotted? Well, in Austria, where I'm from, there's a little town called Hallstatt and they put up a fence to block the selfie spots for tourists. So that's a quite a spicy little story. Enrico, what spice are you bringing today? Well, uh, Luton Town has been promoted to the Premier League. Being Italian, I have to speak about football. And, you know, all, all over Europe, we knew Luton as the base for EasyJet. Now we'll associate it with uh, the best uh, football tournament in Europe. Luton has its moment in the sun. Solène Leger will also be joining me from our Zurich studio to go through the Cannes Film Festival. And we'll get the latest from the presidential elections in Turkey. Plus, our editorial director, Tyler Brule, will join me on the line from Tokyo. It's the 28th of May, 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. Never in all my days did I think Luton would be mentioned in the headlines of Monocle on Sunday. So thank you very much indeed for that, Enrico. Very Good morning welcome. to you both. Good morning. It's lovely to know. You two work, have worked together as a sort of the, the, the big London pool of great correspondents, don't you? And you can, you can tell when we, see, when we see you guys together in the studio. Very good morning to you. It's great good morning. To it's great to see this again. Just yes. explain to us how you know each other. Well, there because if you are working as a foreign correspondent in... Um, uh, London, you don't get to actually see one-on-one ministers a lot here because we are just not important enough, especially during Brexit. It became a little bit disputed if one should see even European correspondents if you are a Brexit minister. And so we ganged up and formed a group of um, European correspondents and we invite people together for background And then briefings. they come. Then and they then come. they come. We are a group, they come. Yeah. Brilliant. And who have you managed to sort of snare and, and, and come to you, come to your meetings? Oh. I mean, it's, you sort of like greet them with a group Every, of about 10 or 15. Yeah, everybody. especially the, actually the Brexiteers, uh, MPs were quite keen on seeing us, you know, and also very nice, actually. And they helped us then to get in touch with others. So, for example, Steve Baker, famously uh, very fond of Brexit, but now very fond of spending time with European correspondents, too. How fun. Sounds brilliant fun. How have your weeks been? What's that? Tessie, you were in the sea. You know, you went to the sea. You were in the, you were in the serpentine down at Hyde Park yesterday. Yes, yesterday I swam in the Lido in the serpentine, which is oh. very, very nice on a beautiful May morning when people drink coffee and the geese waggle around with their baby geese and you swim in between. You have to take a good shower afterwards, I have to say. Yes, you don't drink the water. Enrico, anywhere well, I w- exciting? I was, I was in Hyde Park also yesterday, but I, I saw only parrots on uh, on the trees but a few days ago I was in Sardinia uh, in Italy to f- do a presentation of my latest book and that was very pleasant I went to the beach I could, what's uh, the book it's a, a book of uh, memoirs of a foreign correspondent wow we'll come to that in a minute let us head now to Tokyo where we can hear from our editorial director Tyler Brulo who I hope good evening Tyler is enjoying a sundown away you are I am no sundowners yet. Just a, just a coffee. Not not quite sundowner time yet, though. I will be catching up for uh, that very uh, drinking moment with our bureau chief Fiona Wilson in about an hour from now, Emma. Take it. Tell us what what you're up to today, Tyler. Where where, where are you? And talk us through your situation. 
Well, since since we last spoke, which would be last Sunday, at the very same time, uh, of course, I was in I was in Bangkok when we last spoke. I've trekked all the way back to, or I did trek all the way back to Europe. I was in Zurich for a few days, uh, and I've now found myself all the way back on the other side of the world again in Tokyo uh, for a little bit of a North Asia tour, a little bit of Tokyo, a little bit of Seoul, uh, and then uh, and then back to Tokyo again. But I will be in position uh, for our regular gig, Emma, next Sunday uh, back in Zurich. Can't wait to have you back. So um, tell us what you've been up to today in Tokyo. Uh, today it's been it's been a bit of a late start. You know, normally I, I do I know I, I fly well all the time, but I made the mistake this uh, on this trip. I thought I'm going to try something new. Um, maxed out around a very large Wi-Fi bill on the flight uh, on the way to Tokyo. So I'll, I'll work out the entire London and Zurich working day on on Friday, and then got hooked on uh, series two of the White Lotus. Uh, I, I wasn't I didn't even see the first series. Got got hooked on on series two. Watched all seven of them uh and and then um now my my sleeping is probably kind of totally out of whack I'm so, so I've, I've remained on you i've remained on europe time so you have absolutely no idea what time it is you'll be needing that sunrise sundown as soon as rather than later now the second series of white lotus is very sicily based isn't it and it's it is one of those places that everybody suddenly looks to go for for a quick break after they've been there it is an exquisite watch isn't it yeah, it, it's great. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's 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 a bit silly. Uh, it sends up sort of the best of the best of Americans or wealthy Americans uh, traveling into Europe and Italy. So uh, it's got a wry eye on on all of that uh, as much as I think also capturing uh, you know the Italian workplace very well. No, it was good. And I guess what I am saying in code though is I have not done a lot this today. I've had a lunch <laughs> and uh, and I'm just on a bit of a mini retail safari. That's that's about it for a Sunday. Okay, now things are getting serious because. This time last week, you were in a supermarket in Bangkok and you were stuffing your suitcases with cooling talc to bring back uh, to me here in in the UK. The temperatures are heating up here in the UK, Tyler, and and we will be needing that that cooling talc. But uh, what retail have you spotted today? Because Japan does retail like no one else on earth. Well, and we should probably pick up on the cooling theme, Emma, because okay. you know, just, you know, this is part two, but I, you know, I come back to a glaring business opportunity. You know, whether we're thinking about grocery stores in, in Sardinia or, or, or even uh, convenience shops in the UK, uh, you know, th- there is an opportunity when it gets toasty, when people are you know, on the tube, uh, when they're riding a tram through uh, toasty Vienna, for example. Uh, I, I think Europeans are, are sort of missing some daily essentials, aside from cooling talc. The one thing you notice in Japan and that, and you, of course you see that the warm season has, has definitely kicked in because there's also re-merchandising as well. So you have lots of cooling sprays and, and various antiseptic cooling wipes, etc. But the really the big boom, you know it's the, the warm season. It's just the sheer amount of different types of towels. Then I'm talking about sort of face towels, terry towels, which are available um, at checkout. Variety of colors. You want uh, jungle print, you want rainbow, you want sort of natty preppy stripes. You can have all of these things. And it's because people get bloody hot here and they need to, of course, uh, blot their, their brow and their, their forearms um, um, and anywhere else that happens to get hot in the heat. And, and this is, you know, you just, it's a whole seasonal change when you see all of these products, of course, uh, you know, come front and center, you know, in, in any number of retailers. And these are, these are what the, the equivalent of a sort of a quite light face cloth. Is that correct? 
Yes, we're talking about a face cloth. And, and then, of course, you know, there's, there's various, uh, of course, levels you can go to. You know, there's probably, um, you know, more like the bargain basement prices, which are uh, versions which are all made made in China. Of course, a massive push as well for uh, products made in the terry cloth region of Japan, Imabari, um, which is famous for a variety of different makers, uh, of course, significantly more. Uh, but proudly sporting the Imabari flag on them. So we're talking, you know, high stakes. We're talking about real segmentation in the sector, and it shows you how important it is because, of course, of the toasty temperatures. Indeed. I mean, I'm, look, the, the fact that we're now going to put a flag on a face cloth is up, has now, we've, we've moved this up a gear. Um, I'm going to bring our Austrian and Italian uh, guests in for a moment, if that's all right with you, um, Tyler. Um, Enrico, Enrico, I mean, we could see some incredibly stylish terry toweling stuff going on in Italy, couldn't we, at the checkout? If you have these little little face cloths with, you know, we could go, you know, full Portofino, we could go Milan. This could be beautiful. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, uh, you mentioned Portofino uh, and uh, there is a story in Portofino actually similar to the Austrian town that uh, Tessa mentioned before. Uh, they they f- uh, forbid tourists to stand by in the square more than five minutes because too many crowds are there. The place is so beautiful that uh, it's invaded by tourists and it's a dilemma what to do. And how about a couple of terry toweling face wipes when you're dumping on the tram on the on the on the ring in yes, in Vienna. I don't know if we can sort of turn this into a big business, but uh, <laughs> maybe if you put a little sort of um, sachertorte on it with a whiff of you know parfum de sachertorte or something like that. Right, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a chocolate flavored sachertorte Terry Towling uh, thing on the on the tram in in Vienna, Tyler. Have they have they decided have they managed to scent these things yet in Japan? Not, not yet, because as you know, Japan is not very big on scent. Uh, it, you know, they they like their makeup, but Japan is not big on on fragrance in uh, in in any form. But I think actually a little spritz of knicha, um, uh from Vienna, I think could uh, could could be very interesting. But I mean, it is uh, it is it is you know again, I think it's um, it's an opportunity that uh, you know we might want to think about because you do see people struggling in Western cities with the heat, and and we have to figure it out. Uh, you know, there's there's no question, of course. We can over air conditioning. We can do all kinds of things. We can have cross breezes. Uh, but there is something about showing up for a meeting, uh, arriving at dinner, and looking uh, a little bit composed and cool. And I think the Japanese, eyes hot on their heels, um, have definitely figured this out. This is brilliant. Uh, uh, you may not be able to answer this question, but anybody turning up in a full face of makeup isn't going to go very well with these face cloths. It's just not going to end well, is it? No, it's definitely. Never- no, it's going to look like, yeah, sort of the remnants of, uh, of having been in the circus or something on your face cloth. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's, uh, but then I think, you know, I, I actually, that's maybe a good story for us as well. I'm not, you know, a, a, na- a nation uh, which has, of course, a huge cosmetics industry, both domestically and globally. I've actually really never thought about uh, how, you know, how the Japanese uh, deal with cosmetics in the summertime. Well, I guess actually there are a lot of blotting sheets, though, so that's a whole other sector. This is not fabric, <laughs> but, you, but you have blotting sheets. And maybe this is uh, is what you use to keep makeup intact. But I, I, I can go out and research for you. Would you mind? I'd be I'd be extremely grateful. Um, after you've done that, what's on the cards for your time in Tokyo? Uh, just it's uh, it's a very uh, very early flight to, to Seoul tomorrow, so two two days uh, there, uh, scoping out, checking out stories. It, it, you have that sort of feeling that, of course, uh, that, that the, the summer season is is arriving. Uh, it, the city is just absolutely rammed. And I'm talking Tokyo, rammed uh, with with tourists, Aussies, uh, Europeans, 
loads of Americans, you don't get a huge sense that um, that that you know, China's not bounced back here yet. I think a lot of people are, you know, both both the hotel sector, the retail sector is waiting for the return of, of China, um, both enthusiastically and, and with probably a little little sense of fear as well. Um, uh, and, and of course, you know, other other Asian nations. But if you if you sort of scour, scour the streets at the moment, it really feels like the West is is back in Japan. Of course, before um, it gets crazy hot, and then everyone, of course, will will be back again for the autumn leaves. But we'll be ready with our towels and our blotting paper and our funny sprays. Tyler, I can't imagine what's going in your suitcase. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from uh, Tokyo. That was our editorial director, Tyler Brule, doing his shopping in the Japanese capital. Uh, Right, let's bring on our panellists properly. Let's uh, hear now from Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for the Austrian magazine Profil, and Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica. So how have your weeks been? How was Sardinia for you? What's happening with Sardinia? It's all kicking off in, in, it's it's the beginning of the, sort of beginning of summer now, isn't it? Beginning of summer, beaches are already crowded, the the sea is beautiful, and uh, it's it's a great place, Sardinia. You know, fiercely independent. When they say when they go to Rome, for example, they say now we go to Italy. That's the way they they look at the continent. Uh, there had the long story of wanting to be separated, uh, a succession from Italy, but then that went out of fashion. But it's a great place, great for food also. Uh, we do like to talk about food here. What did you eat? Well, I ate fantastic fish, beautiful spaghetti with uh, spaghetti with um, uh, black sauce, uh, you know, and, From squid. Uh, and botarga in a restaurant overlooking the sea. So I can't complain. You did have a bad week, didn't you, um, Tessa? Have you been eating botarga and and spaghetti overlooking the sea? Well, no, you've been immersing yourself in goose poo in the in the. That's true. The goose poo is one part, but I also actually happened to have we had a very nice birthday party yesterday night in in the River Cafe. So that was quite Italian, as you can imagine. Yes. And the food was absolutely brilliant from the starters till the dessert. I think there's a the big... lemon tart was sort of divine, surrounded the, by. And, and the chefs are Italian. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean they're English, but they they have the kitchen is, the kitchen is, is, is seriously Italian. Seriously Italian. They travel at least once a year, don't they, on a pilgrimage to somewhere in Italy where they absolutely. go and learn, 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 learn. A, a, a much loved place here in, in, in Monaco. Absolutely adores the River Cafe. But, but since uh, Tyler mentioned White Lotus, yes, I mean, and you wanted to go to Sicily, and well, Taormina is on the list. Taormina is on <laughs> yes. the list, and if you watch the season, it takes place. In the best hotel in Taormina, San Domenico Hotel. I mean, after you see that, you do want to go. Indeed, indeed. We actually investigated that as possible a Nelson destination. Uh, we might have to work a little bit harder <laughs> to get 10 minutes in there. Um, let's have a look at the news this week. What has uh, struck you? Uh, Enrico, what, what caught your eye? Well, uh, for example, Brexit again, you know, there was a story in the I newspaper that uh, the population of Britain is going to overtake France uh, and become the second largest in Europe after Germany. And the reason is immigration, you know, net immigration the, the, uh, in the last 12 months was uh, more than 600,000 in this country. Wasn't the Brexit supposed to stop uh, immigration? Wasn't that the big problem uh, for Brits? Well, according to the polls, now people have uh, a rethink about uh, Brexit. How um, yeah, I have a little tutting from the Austrian corner. There. <laughs> I'm always smiling, you know, when I when I saw 
every year the Tory manifesto before Brexit and after always claiming that they would bring down immigration figures. And, you know, in 2015, 16, it was sort of bring it down from 300,000 to 100,000 yeah. legal immigration. Yeah? And now we are at 600,000. And I'm sort of silently smiling, sitting and smiling and thinking, you try to fix it with the wrong meth method. You know, every country is struggling. Every sort of uh, successful economy is struggling with um, immigration numbers. And I always think also, especially as an Austrian, who we also deal with far-right politicians and populist politicians trying to make it look as if that's an easy thing to do to close the borders. And now, of course, Britain has a problem doing the legal and the irregular uh, migration figures are not coming down because it's just a very difficult task and it's not being solved by inhuman and silly ideas like uh, exiting the European Union, as we can see. I was talking to a friend who's in hospitality last week and I said, how are you coping? Because there was this enormous drop in the number of EU um, citizens who who left and, and now there is a, um, a negative migration, isn't there, back to the EU. More people, EU citizens, are leaving the UK than are coming. Um, and for a little while, they, people have been struggling, struggling, struggling to find the waiters and the, the hosts and the hotel workers. Um, and I was told that everybody now filling those jobs is Indian because Boris Johnson last year, when he uh, went to see Narendra Modi, um, in return for the prospect of an excellent trade agreement, relaxed the visa requirements, which now means that if you go into a coffee shop or if you go into a restaurant now, everybody's Indian. So the, this, the, 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 the migration hasn't changed. The, 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 the level, it's just that the numbers haven't changed. It's just people from different places now, that's all. Well, that's maybe a nice thing also. Mm. You know, I'm thinking the government uh, is uh, now not only white as it was in the yes. 50s. And sort of, the, so it also reflects uh, a change in society, which I personally think is, is is a very good thing. The only thing that um, that is interesting is that you're now turning against, for example, that these the foreign students bring their dependents. And this is the only way they try to bring down the uh, migration numbers, immigration numbers. And it's actually, again, the wrong thing to do. Because, you know, for foreign students who come from uh, Nigeria and they are sort of really willing to go in here and study and also pay for their studies and then afterwards maybe stay here and bring something really good to the workforce, um, you know, and bring their maybe girlfriends, wives, children, whatever. It's a uh, husband's very good idea to do that. You know, that's good for a country and they shouldn't be capping the numbers there. I mean, it's just the wrong method and the wrong thing to do for a country that is an immigration country. Not least because of the amount of money that's brought in by international yes. students to, to universities. Yes. So I remember for decades and decades and decades, universities have depended on international money uh, to, to, to keep themselves going. Um, it does always say, though, that at the end of the day, you can do whatever you like and you can thump any kind of tub that you like, but the United Kingdom still remains a country of opportunity, doesn't it? Yes, you should be happy that people want to come here. And by the way, you mentioned money. You know, Do you know how much a, a, a foreigner pays for university in this country, £25,000 a year, opposite 9000 So that's a lot of money for a university budget. 
But that's why also the Europeans don't come anymore and go to no, Holland no, now. No, and that's a really sad thing. Yes. And you can't come here as an au pair exactly. anymore. You can't come, as you say, to as work in the bar for a while and get settled. So and in within 10 years now, we'll see how the population will change also. Unless in 10 years from now, there will be a change of mood. And if not rejoining the EU, putting, uh, you know, in a, on a better relationship and maybe a change in the immigration policy. Okay, now we're lighting a little spark, Enrico, the, the, the idea of the, there could be a change. Because, I mean, obviously when Brexit happened, there was a discussion as to if and when the United Kingdom would ever we rejoin. And there would be changes required on every side, wouldn't there? Yeah. Um, I was sort of predicting 20 years, but you're sort of bringing it forward at least 10 and actually looking at what's happening in the papers today. Uh, there's an article in The Observer saying more than half of voters now want Britain to forge closer ties with the EU, a dramatic reversal in public opinion, even in those constituencies that recorded the highest votes to leave. Um, the best route forward is to forge closer ties with Brussels. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, um, I, I read somewhere that uh, the, the possible moment when there will be a change in this direction is, let's say, the second mandate of a Labour prime minister after uh, Rishi Sunak. So not the first uh, five years, the second five years, maybe the the country will be ready to discuss it. With, uh, you know, Mark Twain had the famous say saying it's easier to trick people than to convince people they've been tricked because it's it's difficult for someone to admit, well, I was dull, I was uh, naive, uh, I let myself into a trap, I didn't understand that Brexit was a terrible idea, I'm stupid. No one likes to think that, and actually, probably no, <laughs> no one was. If someone's lied to you, someone's lied to you. But um, okay, so so let's. So you're now looking into this gloriously European-looking crystal ball. In the assuming, I mean, we're, we're assuming a lot of things here, Enrico. We're, we're assuming that Conservatives will lose the election next year. We are cons- we're assuming that Labour in will get in after that. We are then assuming that it will get in again. I mean, good luck with all that. Um, but then, what's Europe going to say as we sort of knock on their doors and go? Really sorry about walking out of the marriage and leaving the house, but can I come back in again, please? Well, I mean, people always say like, no, but uh, Europe wouldn't take the EU wouldn't take back Britain, but I think that's not true. I think in the case that there is a serious change uh, here in the in the public opinion, and if there's a government, if there's a political party that takes this on as a project, and sort of has the chance to actually move this along. You know, this Labour Party under Keir Starmer at the moment is not ready to do that. And of course, the Tory party, we don't know if they'll ever come out of this complete destruction ideologically and morally um, to come back and and become the old Conservative Party, which at least wouldn't block this if a Labour Party would develop a kind of Tony Blair style pure pure European um, way. And then the EU would say... Of course, I mean, do, you you don't say no to Britain. Britain is a wonderful place to be in the European Union. All this tit that to say that they are sort of uh, making problems all the time. And da, 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 da. Yes, they do. But, you know, Hungary does that too. And Britain is an old demo- democracy, which is a really, really great, experienced negotiator, compromise maker, deal maker, has sort of a lot to bring to the table and, a, and an economy also. Nuclear, that we nuclear power also. Oh, well, yeah, I was going. To, I, would, I want to sort of pick you up a little bit on that one because you said I, I'm not entirely sure the Brits would quite like to be put into the same category as Hungary, which is a, and Poland, which are big, big headaches for, for Brussels. And were the United Kingdom to go back in, 
there surely would be conditions met that would not allow the United Kingdom to have that power of veto and that ability to to sort of just poke and and and, and, and jibe a little bit at Brussels because that relationship with Brussels never felt entirely complete, did it? Yes, but why they would not be allowed to do that? I mean, uh, Europe, the way is developing now under uh, President Macron uh, project also, it's, it's a series of circles. You know, you have an inner circle with the same uh, money with the euro, and then you have a larger circle of countries that keep their own uh, uh, money and uh, their own rules. They're not all in the Schengen agreement. Uh, so it's possible to be in, in Europe, but not completely the way actually the UK was uh, before. I don't know if uh, 10 years from now the UK will completely move to rejoin the EU. But they might, uh, you know, for example, decide to to be into the European, in the market, not in the political union, uh, like Norway, for example, or uh, or in the custom union like Turkey. So it's a, it's a process that can start to make things easier with the advantages that the UK can have. And I totally agree with this. Uh, the EU would not say no to a country that's so important. Uh, the UK has always been the America of Europe in many senses, you know, more dynamic, uh, um, more freewheeling, and uh, it would be it's one of the pillars of the political and cultural Europe. I wonder, I'm being really sort of you know, shaking things around here, but the minute you leave London, and Tessa, you talking about going to see friends out of London in the last couple of weeks, and this conversation is a very European one in a very European part of a very European city. London is incredibly international. The minute you step out of London, people still... OK, the, the, the papers today say there's more of a drawback towards Brussels, even in the most Brexity places. But there is still that core, isn't there? But if you look at these uh, uh, opinion polls of today, for example, and they say that 63 people everywhere, also in, in, in places, 63%, but uh, in places like like uh, Boston, yeah, in these high, high Brexit voting places, and now a majority thinks that it brought more harm. So give it a little bit of time, I think. And it's always, it's in every EU member state, you go out of the urban chattering the coffee shops of uh, of uh, Vienna or Paris and you go into the countryside and people, you know, are not so hot about the European Union and are afraid that they don't get uh, what they want for their sort of local fol- folklore, culture and all kind of things. But to put it very bluntly, if the Ukraine can join, the UK can also rejoin. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the way ahead, I think, in the next decade. And Enrico, you, you believe that the... Uh, the, the rising star of Luton might be one of the key elements of British soft power, making us all fall in love with with, with the United Kingdom again. Um, we don't do football very in great detail here on here on Monocle, but but you did raise the very point that th- this is a football club that has done terribly badly for a very long time, and now it's just suddenly found itself in the top flight. Um, speaking of flights, most of us only know Luton because of its dare I say it, not very wonderful airport. But it is a gateway into the UK, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, football has also many economic, uh, of course, uh, ramification consequences. You know, to get into to get into the Premier League, uh, Luton will uh, receive £170 million over three years and they will build a new stadium. The city will change. Maybe the airport will be become uh, better too. I think we can all hope for that. <laughs> 
and so uh, I mean it's it's important uh, for uh, for the city for them. It's also a wonderful Cinderella story because you know. Uh, it's the first time in the history of football that a team goes from the Premier League, where they were 30 years ago, down to the um, amateurs uh, leagues. Five uh, championships below and then comes back, five championships up. Up and down the stairs, five, to, you know, five flights like that, it's, it's a big thing. That's a lot of climbing. Um, so does this happen a lot in Italy? Uh, well, it does happen. Uh, there are some teams who went down and then came back. Yes, even big teams. Even and the transformative effect on a town cannot be underestimated. You know, cannot be underestimated. Yeah, I cannot think right away of a small, a small town. But also, the other thing that in Europe we always are amazed. Luton is basically considered a, a London airport, right? Uh, it's one of the airports of the Greater London. And how many football teams you have in London? You know, there are about. Uh, Six or seven in the Premier League, uh, six or seven in the Championship. You could have an all Championship by by themselves only, which makes London a wonderful city-state for us to live. You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. I'm joined in the studio by Tessa Shishkovitz and Enrico Franceschini. Tessa, what else have you, uh, you spotted today? So can we talk about Hallstatt now with the yeah. little kind of fence they put Not. up? Because it's when when I went there last year for first time in a long, long time, and you stand at this beautiful um, lake uh, side where the mountains are being mirrored in the lake. I mean, it's just so beautiful, and because it's supposed to be the. Um, uh, the the image that they took for Frozen for this uh, Disney film, uh, it's like busloads and busloads of tourists are coming there to take selfies. And the idea was to put up a fence to disencourage people from coming, which sounds so incredibly silly. And then the mayor also, they had it was just a trial and they sort of canceled it after they realized that if you want disencourage tourists to come, you have to actually take down the site itself. And so as they are not planning to fill the lake with cement, this whole fence thing, I think, has died on the experimental uh, table now and will not be pursued any further. It is an astonishing story, isn't it, that someone says, it's a simple thing as a fence. Can, can really cause lots. And it will make us all want to go to Hallstatt to have a of look. Of course, everyone's going now. And also the fence idea was to have a fence where every second bar is being taken out. So just you would see the view, but you couldn't take selfies, you know, turn around, take yourself and have the whole lake in the background. And so it's it was just such a thought. I mean, it really went quite clever, down actually. a red <laughs> hole. Yeah, but it is a red hole to think that this will sort of work. Um, it's such a populous town, is Hallstatt. I was unaware until recently that um, an exact replica of Hallstatt exists in China. Yeah. Um, it's in, it's in uh, Guangdong and you can go and live in Hallstatt. Yeah. And, and it, I know Hallstatt quite well, but I, I, I'm not a massive fan because I got married in a town a little bit up the road. Did I did. Not. I got married on the Wolfgang yeah. Um But I turn right before I get to Hallstatt and I go up to the Dachstein, which is one of the most mm. beautiful places on earth, the most gorgeous, gorgeous yeah. um, mountains. And I've, I, I don't know. I'm being a bit funny about Hallstatt. Um, sorry, Hallstatt. The glorious thing, though, is that this is this issue about over-tourism, isn't it? And you mentioned 
you know, the, the, the problem in Positano, is it Portofino, not Positano? But not, not only there, of course. Uh, there are other methods that been, have been tried to. In Venice, they, they now they charge you. If you, don't have a, if, you have, if you have not booked a room in a hotel in the city, you have to pay a few euros to get into it because there are so many people's Venice is, is becoming like Disneyland in a way you know <clears throat> even though if you if you go a few um, steps away from Sun Square St. Mar Square you can still find uh, pockets of the city but there are no tourists but uh, it's a big dilemma because Tourists bring money, bring uh, uh, benefits to the economy. On the other end, uh, cities are they, they lose their own their very own uh, reason to attract people because they become like a, something fake, as I said. Or you can go to China to see <laughs> what you can see in Austria and take as many selfies as you want. I don't know. I don't have an easy an easy solution uh, to that. I, I hear from people in Italy who complain, for, for example, in Liguria, in the five lands, the Cinque Terre, they say, why we have to you know, put limits to tourism? Um, uh, we need the money. And uh, not easy to it's say. A, it's a lovely problem to have, to be well loved. Um, <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> let's head now to uh, Istanbul, because in Turkey, the presentation, the presidential race uh, is decided today. Turks are heading to the polls for the second time. Uh, let's hear now from our Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. A very good morning to you, Hannah. Good morning. Uh, right. So the gloves are firmly off now. Polls have been open for how long and what's happening where you are? Yeah, so polls opened at 8 a.m., so they've been open for three and a half hours now. I went uh, down to the polling station closest uh, to my house earlier, um, and there was a really steady stream of people. I mean, it's quite amazing. You know, this is the second time in as many weeks um, that Turks have been asked to come out to the ballot box. For some people, it's very easy. It's a case of walking around the corner. But a lot of people that I've spoken to over the past couple of weeks, you know, for them, it's a case of actually like, going to another city to vote. So, you know, for a lot of people, it's quite a big ask. Um, and also, you know, the opposition are demotivated. Before the first round results, there was uh, strong this could be the moment that Erdogan is going to be defeated. Polls were showing his rival, Malkovich Dorolu, um, winning and in some cases winning outright when that, you know, you know the opposite case, you know, it really took the wind out of, of the opposition sails. And, you know, Kilistarolo and the people around him took quite a few days to sort of gather themselves and to start, you know, making statements again. But I think really, you know, the reason why people are turning out um, and, you know, from what I saw, uh, you know, anecdotally this morning, they are turning out in numbers is because there is a sense now that you know, normal people have to protect their vote. This is, you know, I, it's quite remarkable to be reporting on this in a, in a democracy, you know, many people I speak to are saying, you know, not only are they going to go out and vote today, also, once the polling stations close and the votes count, they're going to go to the polling stations and the electoral boards to monitor either as part of organisations or just by themselves. You know, they, there's this feeling that, you know, if it's just left to its own devices, then uh, there could be some manipulations, there could even be vote, vote stealing. So I think that's the main motivation that's getting people out to the ballot boxes today. Indeed, Kulitsharala's supporters have just said, go to the, once you've voted, don't leave, just just stay there. So there's very much a, a fear, isn't there, that this election will be free, but it but it won't be fair. The, the campaigning and the lead up to it has been a problem for the opposition as well, hasn't it? Because unlike uh, Erdogan's supporters, they couldn't do anything such as campaign via text, could they? 
Yeah, I mean, every election, you know, as time goes on with every election, these kind of like seemingly small things, you know, not being able to send out text to supporters or text to try and, you know, rally some more votes. It seems like a small thing. But when you add it up with all the other things that the opposition is blocked from doing, principally the mainstream media, they're almost completely shut out of that. It's almost entirely controlled by Erdogan's allies. Um, you know, being uh, on occasion, you know, blocked from holding meetings, um, you know, sometimes being cut as they're being interviewed on TV. You know, all these things really, really harm their visibility. Now, of course, you know, just like Erdogan has his, you know, firm base of supporters who aren't going anywhere. The opposition also have that firm base of supporters. But the problem is they're really stymied when they try and reach out beyond that base. You know, Turkey is a very, very divided, polarized country. Um, and it's almost geographical. You know, if you look at Turkey as a whole, most of the interior of Turkey, away from the coasts and away from the Kurdish region, supports Erdogan really, really strongly. And then in Istanbul as well, I mean, Istanbul is literally kind of, you know, split geographically between opposition areas um, and and areas that support Erdogan. And, you know, for the opposition to reach out beyond the areas where they're guaranteed support has become more and more difficult. Just tell us a little bit about whether Turkey is now resigned or has accepted another five years of Erdogan in power. Yeah, most people have. I mean, when I was talking with people this morning, most people were saying, you know, one lady said, in my heart, I want to believe that Kılıçdaroğlu is going to win, but in my brain, I know that it's almost inevitable. I mean, Erdogan, um, you know, according to the official results, um, came just within grasp of winning in the first round um, on May the 14th. He got about 49.5%. Um, and Kılıçdaroğlu was trailing quite far behind. He was on 44.5, uh, I think. Um, and, you know, both of those men have tried over the past two weeks um, to win extra support from nationalist votes. So the third candidate, he decided to throw support behind uh, Erdogan. Another another um, uh, nationalist decided to support Kılıçdaroğlu. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does seem that Erdogan is going to take it today. Um, just, I mean, obviously you're, you're clearly in demand, so we're going to let you know in a minute. But when do we find out? What are the logistics now, um, Hannah? So polls will close at 5 p.m. Turkish time and you know, votes are generally counted very, very quickly. We usually know by about 11 um, o'clock or midnight who's won. You know, usually actually somebody's claimed victory. And I think in this case, because it is a straight vote between uh, you know, two candidates, there's no third candidate, there's no parliamentary vote this time, I think it will probably be quicker. So I'm sure by the time you're waking up tomorrow morning in the UK and opening the newspapers, there will be a result. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul. Thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and joining me in the studio, Enrico Franceschini and Tessa Shishkovitz. Um, Enrico, let's just look at the prospect for the rest of the world of five more years of Erdogan. I mean, it, about a month ago, this was all up in the air. It was everything to play for, and the world was thinking, actually, this could be the end of two decades in power for him. But now we have... What many have said is is probably one of the most important elections in the world this year because of the fact that Turkey has involvement in everything. Yes, yes, I suppose absolutely. In, the, in, in NATO, in the European Union, in the war in Ukraine. Uh, uh, it's, it's a bridge between East and West uh, and uh, it's very 
disappointing result. If it will happen, it will worry a lot of people. We we'll have to find a way to, to deal with it. Uh, it is, of course, a democracy, but uh, with some limitations, as your correspondent just just said. Uh, it, it shows once again that uh, now there is a, a new way to uh, you know manipulate elections when, when you have a huge control on the media and... Uh, uh, you can you can spin a vote uh, without actually uh, forbidding other parties to completely uh, to stand in. An interesting point is when when your correspondent said you know the division between uh, uh, the coast, the cities, and the the. Uh, country at large, which is so similar in so many countries in the world. In America, it's the same. You know, in the United States, you have the cities along the coast are Democrats and all that is in between is Republican. It's the same to a certain extent in Russia from what little bit of uh, election we see there and and in other countries as well. And, uh, and how to... Uh, close this gap between the cities and, and the country at large. It's very important for democracy. I believe the, the main thing is edu- more education and maybe the digital revolution will help. Tell us, uh, the Austrian relationship with Turkey is quite interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, it was in the 1960s. Am I right in thinking that the great Gastarbeiter drive was yes. to bring Turkish people over to, to, to help fill the, uh, the the work gap in, in Austria? Absolutely. And these so-called Gastarbeiter, the guest workers, which was a, not a very <clears throat> um, sensitive, sensible and good policy to bring them as temporary workers. And then, of course, they did stay and it took till today. It's sort of unclear um, how their access to passports and citizenships is um, is being managed. And it's the same in, in Germany that those millions of Turkish uh guest workers from the 60s and 70s are now, of course, in the second, third generation of, of of German or Austrian citizens. And unfortunately, we see in the election results, they have been voting in the second round now already uh, uh, in the last days before the polls close. And, um, and in the first round, there were like 63% who voted for Erdogan. So if you think that these... Um, uh, exiled uh, or double citizens uh, um, are preferring the strongman after 20 years that he's in power and he has been a really bad manager of the economy. I mean, it's really shocking to think that people vote for a man, A, who does, uh, you know, clo- is closing down uh, rights for women, democratic rights generally, is mismanaging the economy, wants to introduce um, illiberal uh, immigration and refugee policies in the next round now. I mean, all this, I mean, you know, of course, also anti-Kurdish, anti-everything. And people who live in Germany and Austria are supporting or in the majority supporting these politics. I mean, I find this quite shocking, I have to say. And I blame also the governments, the consecutive governments in Austria and in Germany because they have not strengthened the pride of these Turkish uh, gastarbeiters, so-called gastarbeiters, which are now citizens. And if they are not citizens yet, they should be, of course, uh, you know, welcomed. The Austrian government has made it very difficult to have double citizenship, which is sort of so old-fashioned and so out of date because, of course, people do have double identities or multiple identities and you should be allowed to to carry two passports if you have 
you are you are sort of um, feed in two cultures, and it's a it's a good thing also because it sort of helps us understand the world better if we if we are a little bit Turkish and a little bit German or Austrian or a little bit British and a little bit Italian or whatever. You know, it's just that's a much better world to live in if you don't have to be reduced to one kind of bloodline, so to speak. And that's why I think we need to reform not only. Turkey, which will take now another five years if Erdogan actually does win, it will have to wait. But we should also look at the immigration politics and regulations in in the European Union member states where people are not being helped to feel proud of their heritage and to support liberal politics in in all these senses. Uh, Tessa and Enrique, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back with you in a moment, but let's head to Zurich now to hear from Solon Leger, a film producer and regular guest on Monocle on Sunday. Hello, Solon. Hi, Emma. How are you? Very well, uh, thank you. Now, you're just back from Cannes, where everything uh, wrapped up last night uh, with, with, yes. quite a, with quite a sort of an angry closing ceremony to the, to the film festival. I watched it and it, was, it got quite nasty at the end, didn't it? It did. It did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 completely. I'm glad you watched it first. No, no. Yeah, I'm just back from Cannes. It was intense. I was there for the second week. And it's always very pleasant to be back uh, to Zurich non-chaos. So, so happy to transit from Cannes to Zurich directly. <laughs> so um, the, the reason why it all got a bit nasty was that the, the award of the, uh, the Palme d'Or, it went to, is it Anatomy d'une Chute, an Anatomy of a Fall? Yes, um, exactly. And Directed by Justine Trier. Exactly. And Justine Trier took, took to the stage in a magnificent, dare I say, tuxedo suit with bright red lipstick, which yes. seemed, to be, seemed to be the uniform last night. Um, but she didn't just take her, her acceptance speech as an opportunity to say thank you. She decided to have an attack on Emmanuel Macron, didn't she? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely. No, no. She finished on that. And you, when you read the press this morning, even in France, you know, they, um, you, you, you can tell that people were a little disappointed that we ended the ceremony on this, that it was not just about cinema. Uh, but I mean, she felt, she felt like it. But the, yeah, the French press and especially French industry uh, said that it was a, a little sad to end like this. I don't know. What do you think, Emma? I don't. What was just, your feeling? Well, it felt like a little bit of a shock because one usually wants. I mean, you, you had Jane Fonda looking. I can't even begin to describe Jane Fonda, oh, yes. um, but you know, yes. exquisite. But I'm not entirely sure how much her face could sort of express her <laughs> true feelings. Um, but you know, I'll give her that because she looks impeccable. Um, but yes, it did sort of take take the edge of it, and, and you know, just looking at Le Figaro, it's it's talking about how it sort of a, it was a gloomy and negative fil- film festival. Was it really like that? I I always find it's a struggle when people complain about being at Cannes because the place is nice and you're watching films. I mean, seriously, how hard can it be? I agree with you. No, no, no. It's uh, no, no. It's not the the resume. We should uh, we should say no, no. It was, I mean, the people are really focusing on the clôture ceremony. That was a little, I mean, let's say not at the level of the film that were projected because we had amazing film, amazing film, amazing selection. Um, the festival went well. It was full. I mean, amazing red carpets. We had the Scorsese, as you know. Uh, we had the Americans in Cannes. It was. Uh, Apple threw a big party. Tim Cook was there. I mean, a lot of people were there. Uh, it was a great market from, I know that from different distributors, French or not French. So let's try to be a little, not, not just look at the end of that ceremony that you're right, that really, really was not a great point to finish this beautiful two weeks. So tell us, there's a couple of, uh, many of the films that were on show uh, we will not have been able to see yet. But what did you see and what, what should we be right, grabbing our pens and pencils for now immediately to write the name down of, of, of an oh. absolute must-watch in the next few months? Okay, perfect. So I'm going to give you 
kind of an obvious one that I saw the second week I was there. I mean, let's start with the Scorsese because I have to tell you about this because it's it's a new classic. We are back. We have him back in Cannes. He was not in selection since 1985. So that was a big thing to have him back on the Croisette. And the movie, I mean, it's a ride. Huh? It's three hours and 26 minutes starring DiCaprio, De Niro and Lily Gladstone. It's one of the Apple biggest budget. It's a two hundred million dollar budget film uh, produced produced by Apple, as I was telling you. And the story is set in the twenties in Oklahoma and focus on a on a series of murders of in the Osage Native Nation. Um, it's absolutely amazing. Some people said the mo- to to me the film could have been done in two hours, but I, I really enjoyed every minute. Standing ovation at the end of the film. Um, Funny thing, Martin said that uh, they shoot this a film a few years ago, right before COVID, and he told the room that it was a lot of grass for a New Yorker like him, and he, but he said he really, really was missing the incredible sets and nature of Oklahoma. It's nature is one of the characters. It's absolutely amazing, and uh, it took time to thank the Osage nation since you know they've been a real advisor on set and they were all in the room. So that was a pretty special moment. It's amazing. This is Killers of the Flower Moon. We're going to have to wait until October before we can see this. 20 Um, of October, exactly. I've I've got Enrico nodding furiously the minute that we said, (laughs) wow, Um, Enrico, (laughs) you sound super happy about the prospect of another Scorsese film. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Scorsese, De Niro, and so I can't wait to see it, really. Happiness, Amazing. happiness, happiness. What else? What else? So, oh okay, we, Enrico's happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what else? Okay. What, what else should we be, be putting on the list? Okay, don't be mad. It's 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 a it's a French film. I mean, directed by. Uh, I'm, I'm not pushing a French film, but this one is amazing, and the American press, especially, is going crazy about this. So it's it's my favorite film of the festival. It's from the Vietnamese director Tran Angel Ong. You know, he already won in Cannes and Venice in the past, and he gave us the movie The Pot au Feu, uh, starring the lovely Juliette Binoche that I adore and Benoît Magimel. Um, and yeah, I saw the movie with a group of uh, American friends. They adore it. And uh, the American press is going crazy, I told you. They're talking about a new chocolat uh, when the French press, funny, is a little more mixed about it. And uh, how can I describe it? I mean, it's a very sensorial movie set in the, le- in the late 19th century in France. And it opens with a cooking sequence wait for it, that runs nearly 40 minutes. It portrays a romance between a famous chef and his cook. And uh, the critics are obsessed with this film. Gaumont talk uh, already, you know, it's a Gaumont production and release, and they said it might be an Oscar Oscar contendant. So I'm very excited about this one. This is astonishing because the, the, the pot au four is one of the, the simplest things that you can cook in, in, in the French repertoire, exactly. isn't it? And it's supposed to be the, you know, basically humbly boiled vegetables and meat, but it's so, so much more than that. And people are saying this is a new chocolat, and, and the reviewers are saying that this is a film that we should drool over. I mean, I'm not exactly. entirely sure how much I want to go to a cinema and see lots of people do that but it is one don't of these don't go things. on an empty stomach okay, just this. <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting there looking depressed at my popcorn um, does that sound like Tessa are we, are we all having a, a group trip to go and drool a, drool oh, a yes. cooker in Julie Binoche yes and then afterwards we'll cook it and eat it together but can I <laughs> shout out for one um, actress that actually plays in both those films that has been have been decorated yesterday with all the prizes and that's a German actress <clears throat> Her name is Sandra Hüller, and she is sort of plays the lead in the film Anatomy of a Fall, but also in the zone of interest. 
by Britain's Jonathan Glazer, and that's based on a Martin Amis novel. And she sort of has not won a prize herself, but she's actually the lead actress in both. I mean, she plays in the zone of interest, uh, uh, actually a horrible role, and that's why she's now being described as the most fearless actress of this season in Cannes, because she plays the wife of the uh, concentration camp uh, manager, uh, Huss. And so they, they, are, they are portraying this family living next to the horrors of the concentration camp, a rather normal, trying to live a normal family life, which of course doesn't work so well. But this Sandra Hüller is now sort of one to watch, I think, in the next years, because she will get a lot, she will appear in a lot of great films, interesting and difficult films. And she sort of, maybe you saw at the time Tony Erdmann, that was 2016. That was a German film that made it even into the movie halls in, in London and the wider English-speaking world because it was such an exceptional film. So then she, she really was, I mean, she was on the stage last last night as the, um, the, the Palme d'Or was being um, accepted. But the, the LA Times have called her the Queen of Cannes. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. No, no, it's, I mean, she... It, it, it was insane. I was, I was in the room. No, no, no. It's, uh, the LA Times said that. They, they're totally right. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Solène, thank you so much for joining us. On the line from Dufourstrasse 90, that was Solène Leisure, film producer and uh, just having come back from Cannes. You're listening to Monaco on Sunday. Portugal has plenty more to offer visitors than sun, sea and sand. With its vibrant cities, rolling vineyards and incredible history of design and a resourcefulness that always amazes. It's a fun place to eat. I mean, like, you just don't stop. It's sunny and it's warm and everything's outside. Like, it's great. Portugal, the Monocle Handbook, is the first in a brand new series revealing our favourite places to eat, stay and shop from Lisbon to the Azores. Should you wish to stay a little longer, it will also help you find a neighbourhood that could become your new base and introduce you to the people who have already put down roots. Head to monocle.com to find out more and prepare to see this fascinating nation afresh. We've got a few minutes left until the end of the programme. Uh, Enrico, anything else you want to talk about today? What's happening uh, in the news? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I'm a big fan of Martin Scorsese, but also <laughs> of Juliette Binoche. I would watch anything with her in, in it, so I can't wait to watch that movie um, as well. Uh, well, uh, what else uh, um, I've been uh, following from this side of the pond, the uh, uh, debate about Ron DeSantis and uh, Donald Trump. I saw that... Uh, Boris Johnson went to meet uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, the other day, trying to talk to him, him into being more supportive of Ukraine in the war. I don't know if he was successful or not. Trump used to say that Johnson is the British Trump uh, and uh, maybe we'll listen to him, but uh, I'm not so sure. It was a trip to one of uh, Mr. Trump's golf clubs, I think, that was, that yes. was going on there. I mean, it, it was funny that we, we were listening to the prospect there in, a little while ago, uh, Tessa, of... Uh, Turkey being under the control of Recep Tayyip Erdogan for another five years. And it sort of begs the question, is the, is the world at this moment, well, at least the United Kingdom and the, and the US, having a, a, a moment, a breathing moment of uh, not being led by, you know, Trumpist, Bolsonaro, um, 
uh, Modi. Berlusconi, Modi, you know, the, 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 the autocrat playbook that seems to be sort of coming back because there is a distinct possibility, isn't there, that Trump will be the Republican candidate and do we dare underestimate his, his power of return? And Boris Johnson, we know he's on manoeuvres to try and sort of get a toehold back for the Conservative leadership. Well, I think for Boris Johnson, this is not going to work. But Trump, of course, is a real threat. And also, if he doesn't uh, become the candidate and president again, it could be Ron DeSantis uh, that could be even worse. Uh, so we were discussing this in the last days again and over and over again, that the fact that we are so afraid that one of these guys wins the presidency in America and then tries to stop the for example, the military aid to the Ukraine um, is just showing us how how dependent we in Europe are still from American policies and also the, the military might they bring with them. And I was thinking this uh, week, you know, at the end this morning, we're waking up to the news that uh, Joe Biden has managed to get a deal to to limit the to to for the debt ceiling deal, which will make it possible to sort of continue now in the next week without having a collapse of the financial system. So it's not only political; it's not only military aid. It's also that we are dependent in our financial markets to what happens in Washington, and so. Joe Biden has shown, and that's the hope of the moment. I think we shouldn't be too sad this morning because he has shown that he can do these compromises and the big deals. And even if his age is making us all tremble with fear that he might not make it through a second um, term at all. But in principle, he is the man of the hour and not so much Donald Trump. And, and we could sort of hope that this uh, also means that, for example, the other thing that happened now this morning, that the um, uh, military uh, advance of the Ukrainians that finally the spring offensive has started um, uh, and you know under the time pressure that everyone is under because uh, once the election campaign becomes serious in the United States it will be more difficult for Congress to send more military aid to the Ukrainians so everyone understands that everyone is in the spring very sort of attentive to what happens in Washington but things are happening and moving and um, the military offensive of the Ukraine towards Russian um, the Russian army will also of course not be a one-off and successful or something or easy but it will be there. And Donald Trump said that he would sort out the Russian invade 24 hours. That's all it would take. Yeah. <laughs> uh, quite, a, quite a challenge for his opponent, Ron DeSantis, isn't it? Because Ron DeSantis launched his uh, tilt at being uh, the Republican candidate. Um, he didn't have a good week, did he? No, he didn't have a good week. He wanted to have a big launch of the campaign on Twitter. There were a lot of uh, problems uh, for him. And Elon Musk actually took more time uh, on uh, than, than uh, DeSantis himself. So it didn't go well. But many, th many people think... I think in the end Trump will win the nomination and will be beaten by Biden in the end. According to many analysts, uh, Trump is the best opponent for Biden because people, some people in the center uh, of the electorate in America will remember the, all the bad things about Trump. And, and one final thing I want to say for Britain today is that uh, the leadership of this country, of the UK, in uh, helping Ukraine has been marvelous and very important all over the world, not only uh, in their 
relationship with the U.S., but uh, gives you hope that no matter what happens in the White House, uh, there will be Europe supporting Ukraine in this struggle for democracy. We'll have to leave it there. Enrico Franceschini and Tessa Shishkovic, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. And thanks also to Tyler Brule, Hannah Lucinda-Smith and Solène Leger for joining me too. Because that's all we have time for for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Many thanks to the producer Desiree Bandley and our studio manager Callum McLean. Uh, I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week from Dufourstrasse 90. Uh, Tyler is behind the microphone, microphone for that. But for now, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye.